If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables, and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton Green Tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new Signature Blend Green Tea and new Lemon Peach and Honey Ginger Green Tea. Try new Lipton Green Tea today. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. One of the biggest challenges facing historians who study slavery is finding sources that can give us insights on the experiences of the enslaved people themselves. But the historian Sean Wallace is working on a project that looks at familiar sources in a new way. In the Fugitive Slave Database, he's compiled advertisements for escaped enslaved people in the American South to see what they can tell us about those who made a bid for freedom. I spoke to Sean to find out more. Thank you very much for joining me today, Sean. So I wanted to speak to you about a project that you've been working on at the University of Bristol. So it's a fascinating project called the Fugitive Slave Database. Can you tell us a bit about the database, what it consists of and what your aims with it are? Sure. Well, thank you, firstly, for uh, inviting me along uh, this morning to talk about the project. It actually began back when I was doing my PhD several years ago, and I finished it in 2017 18 but as part of the uh, doctoral project, was creating this database, which is, it's unique, it's one of a kind. Um, there are now similar databases uh, out there. 
And really the project set out with quite a broad uh, aim, which was to effectively build a socio-economic, socio-cultural profile of fugitives uh, in Maryland and Georgia during the early national period. Uh, the reason for that is it had never been done before. Um, so basic questions such as who were the fugitives, how did their fugitivity look? Um, that was really how the project started and it sort of built um, over the years. Uh, and at Bristol now, uh, we have students actually working on uh, on the database and, and using it as well to form their own projects. So. so the database is made up of adverts, right, for escaped enslaved people. Can you tell us a bit about these adverts? So where did they appear and what details did they include? Sure. It's a good question. So the uh, advertisements themselves were issued by primarily slaveholders, slaveholding men and women. Um, but there is uh, people that, you know, were estate administrators, for example, issued. But but generally speaking, the, the purpose of the ad was to uh, inform the public that a fugitive um, from slavery uh, had escaped. Uh, and then to facilitate recapture. At times there's obviously, um, which I'm sure we'll go into, but if we take that as a, the kind of general principle that, that that's what they're uh, all about. Um, the first ad, um, this was something that I actually found during my PhD. Um, and it was one of those ones where I started out and said, well, when, when was the first one? And I couldn't find an answer um, to that. So after much searching, uh, I found uh, and dated it to 1705 uh, in the Boston newsletter. So quite so, early then. Yeah, yeah, very early. Yeah, and uh, it was actually um, John Campbell who was a Scotsman, who was a postmaster at one point and who was behind the Boston newsletter. Uh, the advertisement appears there, uh, and it's for an African fugitive and a Native American fugitive who have escaped together. The ad looks very different to what we see later on in the 1700s and 1800s, but um, by definition, it is a, a fugitive a slave ad. Um, so we see them really from 1705 all the way through. I think the last one I could date was to 1864. Um, after that, uh, advertisements do appear, but they're very careful not to use the word slave. So they are there. Um, and for all intents and purposes, they probably are fugitive uh, slave ads, but um, but you know, as a historian, we have to be careful not to, mm. to to guess effectively. So, so that um, in terms of what they include, but they they range quite considerably in what kind of details they have. Um, you know, it can go from a really broad, uh, a really brief description, even uh, or physical appearance, um, maybe some details around the uh, act of escape itself. But at times, uh, you know, it may list, for example, all the clothes that an enslaved person took with them. It may speculate on their whereabouts, um, their destination, uh, if they, you know, escaped with any family members. So we we have this this source that is a slaveholder construct, which, you know, uh, there's obviously a, a reluctance there. Or there has been in the past to use these types of sources. But I think we need to, you know, as long as we're not using them for that original purpose, and we're using them to kind of unearth these um, stories that are within them, then um, they're they're you know so valuable for us as, as historians. So, what are you hoping hoping that you can unearth from these adverts? Why are they so interesting to a historian? Sure. So, for for me, uh, you know, I, I think there was the the purpose of the PhD, which was was creating this profile. So, who were the fugitives of Maryland? Who were the fugitives of Georgia? And I wanted to inflict that upon the historiography and to provide these profiles that um, would would enrich the field. Um, they would be the the first of their type. But but ultimately as a historian, what I'm interested in are, are individuals uh, and humans. And 
um, even now, years and years after beginning that project, I'm still, um, you know, trying to get to grips with what, what was fugitivity, what motivated it, what motivated individuals to escape. And the good thing with the database is that, you know, I can, um, I can compare, uh, I can compare stories. I can, I, I can find trends, but ultimately, you know, every, every escape is unique. Um, and so that that's what keeps me uh, really interested in in this kind of research. Within the context that you're looking at, so Maryland and Georgia, are there any recurring trends that we can identify about what type of enslaved people escaped? For example, do we have more men being advertised? Do we have more women? Do we have any sense of whether they were young or old, whether they escaped on their own or in a group, for example? I'd say very broadly speaking, we know that escape occurs every day. Um, we know also that escape occurs and sometimes isn't advertised. Um, so in many ways, the the advertisement itself is is sort of the the tip of the iceberg. Um, it's a good question in terms of um, some of the the dynamics we can see when we compare. Um, there are uh, usually, I mean, I think it's about eighty five percent of ads that uh, I I looked at in both Maryland and, and Georgia uh, were for males. And do, do we get a sense that's because more men were escaping? Or that men were, for example, more more valuable. Both, I'd say no. Um, on, only in the sense that, um, in the sense that the uh, there, there certainly we can say that that men are being advertised more for. They're making the uh, they're making the ads effectively, but that doesn't mean that that um, you know uh, female slaves aren't escaping every day as well. It may be that the the fugitivity patterns are somewhat different, so potentially shorter escapes. Uh, that, that then don't make it to uh, advertisement. But, um, you know, I will be very careful here because, you know, it, it is absolutely a minefield because um, we're talking here about uh, advertised fugitivity. And in terms of that, then absolutely men are uh, dominate um, that. But I think this is one of the, the big problems within the historiography is that we could we could make an assumption. In many ways, we see that kind of trend and we should actually be then asking more questions and we should be saying, well, well why is that? Um, why are more men uh, advertised? In terms of the values uh, and things, what you can do with these ads is is to establish, um, you know, average rewards, for example. And then what I tend to do with that as a, as a historian is I, I use average rewards and then I can look either side of that. So I can I can look at, for example, if, if let's say the average reward was $35, $40, and someone's then advertised for 150 Suddenly that raises a really important question and I start to explore um, that type of thing. So um, so yeah, you can use all the, in the, the information there. Sounds like there's myriad paths of investigation here, aren't there? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the one of the pleasures of uh, working on these, working with these sources and the database is I get to explore these, but I now have students exploring them as well. And, um, you know, for example, um, I've had a student recently who um, was, again, it, it was one of those trends. They saw someone that was being advertised for quite relentlessly for six months, uh, every single day, uh, quite a high reward as well. Um, and they started to explore, well, the skill set of that enslaved person. And, you know, starting to look at, for example, comments that, you know, they could play musical instruments um, and what the significance of that might be. Did it impact on the reward value, for example? The other thing I think is worth worth pointing out as well is that, you know, the reward value, of course, it projects some form of uh, value. But what that value is as well is really complex because what seems to be the case at times is, you know, uh, enslavers 
are you know they they want to project control they want to project power um and it is one of the ways in which once someone has escaped that they can do that so, well that is something i wanted to ask you about that the motivations for posting these adverts generally do we have a sense of whether what the the slaveholders wanted was the person returned to to work for them again for their purposes or did they want to find them for a punitive reason to punish them and and to deter others from trying to escape i think again a, co a combination of all i i think you know the we we can never definitively know but i would say looking at the the descriptions within you know it was actually i was given a paper once and someone raised this exact point which was one of the ads that i was shown they said well there's not actually a huge amount of detail in there and actually in terms of the the physical description a lot of people could could match um that description does it raise the possibility that this is nothing about actually capturing people this is making a statement and that had a really profound impact actually on, on my own research and and the way that i looked at these sources and I think I think there 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 certainly is in some ads there's an indication I guess that um there's enough of a description there um in terms of uh the the physical description there's speculation about where the person may be there's usually you know potentially a, a high reward um so you would maybe make the assumption there that that the person is you know there's a, a real effort to to get them back um but at the same time um you know we see some ads that you know will include uh you know wanted dead or alive at the bottom and at that stage you're you're dealing with something a bit different there um it seems to be just about control and and having control of someone's fate effectively from from afar um so yeah, I think there's I think there's different motivations there. But so you mentioned there that some of the ads they had to be fairly vague in the details because maybe that person didn't have a huge amount of identifying characteristics. And of course, this was you know an aid for photography. Do we have any sense at how successful these ads were at, at having people found and how likely you were to be able to make a successful escape? Sure. Um, so I think historiographically. Uh, I think it's widely accepted that that most, um, certainly not all, but but many escape attempts ended in failure. Um, it, it's just such a difficult uh, thing to do, you know, to to escape and then to survive. Um, however, uh, there obviously, as we know from the the later the antebellum uh, narratives, for example, that many uh, enslaved persons did successfully escape and reach places like Canada, for example. Uh, in terms of using the ads themselves, uh, it's really difficult to know whether uh, they were successful. One of the ways in which you potentially can, uh, and again, you have to be really careful when you do this, but I've had instances in the database where I'm confident that someone who's advertised, um, you know, after the initial ad, so maybe several years later, that's one of the joys of the database. I can I can track individuals. So there's definitely cases where the insinuation would be that if this person's been advertised as a runaway again, having run away again, then they've obviously uh, been captured, come back. Whether the ad itself uh, was what led to the capture, that's difficult to say, but it certainly raises a possibility. So the idea with these ads was that members of the public, is this right, would, would be on the lookout and identify people. Were there anybody that was professionally involved in trying to retrieve enslaved people that had escaped? Yeah, sure. So there's professional, um, what you call a, a quote-unquote slave catcher. So one of the things actually that I, one of the things I found when I was doing our research in, in the US was uh, a 
So advertisements, of course, that we're talking about here would largely appear in local newspapers, but they may also appear as a, like a, a circular as well, something that's basically attached to a wall or a door, uh, you know, like a wanted dead or alive poster they associate with the Old West, for example. Um, and I actually found one of those that clearly someone, uh, a professional, had, had taken off the wall and actually scribbled on the back of it and posted it back to the person. And they were trying to basically strike a deal. So sort of saying, I've, I've, I can see from your advertisement that you are uh, searching for this fugitive. Uh, why don't you employ me to do that? Uh, and it started a, a dialogue there between, but but absolutely there there are, um, you know, I, I think generally speaking, the, the, the public, particularly in the, the period that I look at, so I'm interested really in the early national periods, so 1790s, uh, early 1800s, et cetera. Uh, it's a period in which newspapers, uh, the number of newspapers is increasing quite uh, substantially. Uh, and more and more Americans are, are reading newspapers. And so within that, these these advertisements are really, really important. And the more newspapers, the better print distribution networks, the better transportation networks in terms of uh, transport and uh, newspapers, then the further this news is traveling. And suddenly fugitivity is is you know, becoming increasingly uh, difficult. Uh, it's always difficult, but but certainly so the conditions are, are, are even more challenging. There is, I think, really importantly, um, uh, a fear. There is a, a societal fear uh, of insurrection, of uprising uh, amongst enslaved uh, people. So I think, I think, again, when we're reading these advertisements, the word then is really important here because is it sort of preying upon the fears of the public? You know, does it say enough? That, that creates the the conditions that that makes recapture uh, favorable. I'm I'm interested by that idea you mentioned there of this being a form of insurrection because something that you you've written about is how we could see escaping as a form of resistance. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Uh, fugitivity for a long time has been seen as an act of resistance. So it's it's basically a reaction to conditions within uh, enslavement. So it may be, uh, for example, uh, fear of uh, fear of punishment. It may be in protest at the sale of a family member or a loved one. It may be, uh, again, a reaction to labor conditions. So in all those situations, we'd say it was an act of resistance. So you're resisting the system. However, um, I think, again, historiographically, we're, we're starting to really question that now because it seems that we, we're really missing something if we think it's only ever an act of resistance. Um, so my kind of latest research is looking at fugitivity, uh, you know, as, as an expression of self-actualization of empowerment, trying to focus more on the pull than, than the push. We're trying to complicate what fugitivity is a lot more mm. than, you know, even, you know, you, you probably have, have seen it before, but the amount of people that would describe it as running away. I wanted to ask you about this because throughout this conversation, you've described this as fugitivity and escape rather than saying runaways or why are you choosing that language here? Yeah, really deliberately, um, because certainly there were fugitives who ran away. Uh, they absconded on foot, um, but there are also fugitives who escaped in boats and canoes and, uh, you know, on, on the backs of horses and escaped individually and with their families. And uh, so I think it's, I think, again, it starts with, uh, it starts with the wording. Um, I think we really have to be careful. So when we say a runaway, uh, immediately it evokes a, a, an image in our head. And, uh, you know, that image is, is partially true for sure, but, um, but it's a bit more complex than that. So I just, yeah, very deliberately, yeah, he's that term. <laughs> 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, it's going to be for this this exciting future research and digital humanities projects and you know local conversations, academic conversations, um, wider public conversations. We need to be talking, and we are, which is the most important thing. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton Green Tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new Signature Blend Green Tea and new Lemon, Peach and Honey Ginger Green Tea. Try new Lipton Green Tea today. So you mentioned earlier that some people made it, for example, to Canada. Was there a sense of how far away you'd have to get to be able to make a successful escape? For example, were these adverts just circulated in local newspapers or state newspapers or did they go beyond that? Certainly. Local newspapers, primarily within the vicinity of where the person escaped, um, so the the ad would be circulated there. Uh, it may also be circulated in uh, any any states. Um, you know, fugitivity tends to be cross border, so uh, again, they may be circulated a little bit further than the uh, the local. I think I think again, it raises a really important question because you know you can you can make it across a national uh, boundary or border. In the US, we see things like the Fugitive Slave Law of the early 1790s and then again, uh, 1850, it's revised. So again, this law basically, um, very generally speaking, allows uh, fugitives to be legally hunted uh, and returned uh, to uh, the enslavers. So in many ways, even you know, getting across a border, uh, that's problematic because you may find that uh, you either have to go back across, as is the case with some of the more kind of famous antebellum 
uh, stories that we know. So people like uh, Henry Bibb, um, Josiah Hansen, uh, Harriet Tubman, they return back across. And of course, when you return back for family, then uh, there's a, a very real chance um, that, that you may be recaptured again. But then I think it also raises the question in terms of the the, the psychological impact of of slavery and how far how far away until you felt safe. Uh, I would imagine you never feel safe because I think that fear of recapture uh, is always there. I think that lives on with you. Um, so. It's been kind of a, an undercurrent throughout this conversation, but just to to really reiterate some of the the dangers and the challenges for people who did escape. What are some of the key challenges that you would come across? My book actually begins with Josiah Hansen. Um, so Josiah Hansen uh, is born born in Maryland, but you know goes, goes through life, has opportunities to escape, doesn't. Uh, eventually, he decides to escape alongside his family, uh, and so it's well planned. But what we see across that entire, I think it's a month in total. So they, they travel from Kentucky uh, to to Canada, and what we see are. Uh, quite immediately the psychological pressures so just the sheer enormity of what uh, is ahead uh, they're traveling at night for example guided by uh, the north star um, so again there's in terms of the kind of navigational challenges in itself is really difficult then you have i guess the the constant fear of recapture um, hunger uh, the weather and there's also this fear that that effectively any stranger that you encounter may be full <laughs> they may they may return you motivated by the promise of a reward they may decide to uh to effectively sell you back into slavery uh, for a bounty so i think there's physical challenges i think there's psychological challenges uh i think the sheer enormity of of any act of fugitivity just psychologically is so important to to appreciate it's tragic of course if if it ends in failure and someone's returned back but but there's something psychologically to even embark on that that journey and i think that's where we've still a lot of resource to try and to try and uh, understand that and the narratives that we do have available of people who made successful escapes what were some of the factors that really helped them i think determination firstly uh, i think uh, luck i think sometimes is uh, is important but then we start to see practical skills like literacy for example um so this is something that, uh, you know, instructing uh, an enslaved person to read and write in most, not all, but most uh, of the southern states is illegal. In Maryland, where Frederick Douglass escapes from, it's not. Um, and he does become literate. But again, I think even in that situation, it's worth pointing out that there's certainly not a favorable attitude toward uh, enslaved persons learning, uh, even in that state where there's no formal law against it. In places like Georgia, it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, to prohibit both uh, the instruction of enslaved persons in reading and writing. Um, why is it important? Why is it a skill mm. that they... Why would that help you on an yeah, escape? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I, I look at this from uh, two different points. I think there's a practical point. So being able to read potentially your own advertisement, uh, mm. to know that you're being hunted is really important. Basically, you know who they're looking for or what they're looking for in terms of how you're dressing, how you're behaving, how you're, uh, where you're expecting to go, and you can change course. So I think that's certainly one aspect. There's also the question as whether, uh, to to what extent, I guess, that being able to read actually motivates the decision in the first place to to run away or to abscond or to you know, uh, however you want to frame it. But in a very um, another kind of practical way, I guess, being able to forge 
your own pass, uh, to forge your own um, certificate. This is the big fear of the enslavers. So any uh, enslaved person, when they travel, they need to carry with them written documentation signed by uh, the enslaver, basically saying, uh, you know, where they're destined uh, for, uh, how long they're permitted to travel. Basically, what we see is enslaved persons empowering themselves by becoming literate. They can forge those. They can write their own. And that is what happens uh, in many cases. So uh, things like literacy here are, are really important. So listeners at home, they might have heard of the Underground Railroad. Um, they may, Maybe they've heard of Harriet Tubman, who was associated with it, or perhaps um, read the Colston Whitehead book, which has been really successful in recent years. But could you tell us a bit about the reality of the Underground Railroad, how, how it operated and how big it was as well? Again, it's a, it's a really difficult uh, one to say. I think, I, I, think I, I sort of always spend a good few weeks at the start of any term trying to... Uh, just to, to you know, let the students know that what we're looking at here isn't a railroad. I think that's first and foremost, it's not a railroad. But what we're looking at is a really complex network of uh, safe houses, of individuals who are um, facilitating basically fugitives and, and fugitivity. It basically spans most uh, of the US. There's networks leading to Canada, going out to the south, even leaving the east coast as well. So it's a really vast uh, network and of course, there are fugitives who uh, may engage it for part of the way, um, uh, you know, uh, and others who are uh, quite reliant on it. So we know, for example, Harriet Tubman crosses back a few times into Maryland to uh, help her own. Yeah, family, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so in that situation, um, you know, you're you're basically seeing the the railroad being used um, to to its full effect. But yeah, understanding that it's a network there of that is trying to uh, to facilitate the escape uh, of fugitives, and that it is everywhere. And if obviously it's all very hush hush, but do we know who was involved in the underground railroad network? Was it? formerly enslaved people who had escaped? Was it white abolitionists? Was it a combination of the two? Yeah, so a combination of uh, both. Um, so certainly we, um, uh, you know, from the, the anti-Bell narratives, we we know that there is involvement there with um, uh, persons that were formerly enslaved uh, who um, successfully escaped. Um, but also, yeah, white abolitionists, um, you know, really uh, anyone that, that had that kind of anti-slavery sentiment um, uh, it may may prove to be a um, you know a, an asset during the escape. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, a combination of uh, combination of both. Do we have any sense of how that network would connect up with the very first part of the journey? If you escaped from, for example, a plantation, how would you find your way to the Underground Railroad? Would it be that you'd have to already know somebody who would approach you? Or to be honest, I've not come across a huge amount of. Um, uh, you know, first-hand testimonies of this, but the ones that I have, it tends to be, um, you know, m maybe formerly enslaved persons who have been able to, uh, to, to basically become free, or who are now free persons, whether they've purchased um, their freedom, whether they've uh, been manumitted. Um, you know, there's there's a whole load of ways in which you could then get free free status. But I think that knowledge is really important, whether it be chance encounter or whether it be you know something else that's going on there. Certainly, uh, I think I think people are talking about these types of things, um, talking about the railroad. Um, maybe not explicitly, um, but they're certainly talking about it. And I think at that stage, just it, it may begin with uh, 
you know, a, an individual who may assist. If you decide to escape, uh, you have friends in this particular location. Uh, it does seem to be quiet conversations that are that are uh, ongoing. And I guess as well, what's worth remembering is is that if you sort of, let's say you make it to the first safe house, um, that when you get there, then you're relying on someone else, you know, the next part of the journey. But in amongst all that, you know, you're still uh, grappling with the psychological and physical pressures of that escape. And in some respects, you're trusting or having to trust strangers that, you know, you, you don't know what's motivating them, for example. So um, so I think ultimately the, the agency here is with the enslaved persons. The networks are there, but to even engage the, the Underground Railroad, I think is, again, we have to be, uh, you know, focusing on the fugitive there. Yeah. So to focus on the fugitive, sure. you, you said earlier that one of your biggest interests about this um, project that you're working on is that you can track individuals. And I wonder if you could just share with us any particular adverts or stories of individual people that really stuck with you? Sure. So the 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 one that I always I always use on the kind of conference scene is a uh, is a is an advertisement for an enslaved individual called Profit, and I I tend to get my students even to to analyze this ad because in this it, it, we we have admissions, for example, of Profit being literate. Um, Profit is. Uh, suspected uh, of changing uh, names and clothes and uh, of escaping to certain locations. And behind this description, you can just see this remarkable uh, individual. Only, I think, one or two advertisements appears for profit as well. So again, it's raising the, the, the prospect of the, that he probably has successfully escaped. And this is quite a, um, a desperate attempt um, by the, the slaveholder. And the other one uh, in particular is uh, uh, an advertisement in which uh, the slaveholder is uh, he's really surprised that this, uh, this, this enslaved man has escaped, despite the fact that in his view, he was receiving really favorable treatment. Uh, he wasn't having to labor hard. He was being provided with nice clothing. He was allowed to travel with his, uh, with his, his legal master. Um, uh, on errands, for example, he was allowed to visit different towns and cities, and and then he was really surprised that this guy wants to to live life on his own terms. And we see this quite a considerable uh, advertisement that's uh, published, and, and quite a significant reward as well. And the theme of it is effectively that this this fugitive is um, he's ungrateful, and he should know better. And you see, uh, yeah, things like the the. The paternalism that the slaveholder is trying to project to the public um, of the favorable treatment of, you know, I'm I'm a kind enslaver, and it's just remarkable. And in those situations, I think you, when you start to read against the slaveholder description, uh, you can see the desperation because the individuals that they're describing have long decided that they're not going to put up with this anymore. They're going to escape. They're going to live life on their own terms. They're, you know, they're, they're their own individuals. Uh, they don't want to live with an imposed identity anymore. Uh, they want to be their own people. And so, yeah, I think those are the, those are the two that I always, I always go back to. It strikes me having this conversation about this database that it must be as frustrating as it is rich in that you get these tiny glimmers of 
of people and individuals and and incredibly dramatic and and brave life stories but you never really can find out what happens that must be so frustrating yeah yeah it is i i like to so i i guess characterize them as little historical snapshots um and i think what i guess over time i've grown to appreciate a little bit more is that oftentimes i don't know what happens before and i don't know what happens after but i have this little moment that i um that, that i get a window into uh, and I can tell a lot in that window, um, but uh, yeah, it's frustrating. Um, you, you know, there, there's always the opportunities to follow some of these stories into the archives, um, into uh, newspapers, into uh, plantation records, etc. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I, I sort of lose the story at some point, which is frustrating. <laughs> I don't know. I feel in a privileged position that I that I can, even if it's even if it's a snapshot. That it's in the database and that may be someone's loved one um, and they might one day search the database and find that person and the reason they know about them isn't because uh, a slaveholder wrote about them it's because the fugitive made them write about them finally i just wanted to ask you as a person working in this field who so since you started working on this project how you've seen the field of studying slavery and the lives of enslaved people change and what you think some of the most exciting developments in that field are? I think from my own point of view, I think the uh, the use of advertisements um, is certainly increasing. Um, there's uh, quite a few databases now uh, as well that are uh, appearing that do similar things. Um, they are advertisement databases. Um, and I think what we can see and what I'm struck by is is even the, the sheer amount of digital humanities projects exploring different aspects of of slavery not just in the us uh, in britain all around the world and we're all sort of contributing to that 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 wider conversation that you know broader knowledge and understanding of uh you know the connectivity of of transatlantic slavery and you know we we can tell parts of it um but uh, it's going to be for this this exciting future research and digital humanities projects and you know, local conversations, academic conversations, um, wider public conversations. We need to be talking, and we are, which is the most important thing. That was Sean Wallace from the University of Bristol. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.